1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. We'll read this verse in unison, pausing briefly at the punctuation marks. The Word of God says, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And let's pray. Lord, as we think about this glorious gospel today, we pray that you'd give us insight into your word. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see its glory and to share its glory with the world as we spread this glorious gospel. Lord, you are amazing. The fact that you are who you are and that you loved us and died for us is the best news the world has ever heard. I pray that we'd be busy about sharing it, uh, not just here, but around the world. We're thankful for it. Give us ears to hear and give me the wisdom to know what to say this morning and what you would say if you were here. In Christ's name, amen. amen. You may be seated. What a great verse. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. I want you to think about that phrase, glorious gospel. I think that we would agree that the gospel is glorious. Uh, the word gospel simply means good news. The gospel, capital G gospel, speaks of the good news that forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with the Almighty is available through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friend, that's the best news the world's ever heard. And when we talk about getting the gospel to the world, you've got to understand that much of the world has an idea of religion that is very constraining, that is, is really a form of bondage. There are over 4,000 religions in the world and only one of them has an empty tomb. Thousands of religions in the world and only one of them has a personal God who loves you. Think about that message. Out of all the religions in the world, Christianity says there is one God, He's a personal God involved in your life, and He cares about you. He loves you. Matter of fact, He loves you so much that He sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross to pay for your sins so you could be forgiven. Well, how do you have to earn this? <clears throat> do you have to give large sums of money to earn salvation? No. Is it a lifetime of service on the side of some mountain in Nepal? No. Do I have to commit myself to, to uh, never get married and to give every waking moment to prayer? No. How do I earn this salvation? Faith. Think about that. That this great God made such an amazing gift available to you and anybody, anytime, anywhere can have it if they will only believe. Yeah, I don't know how much money you have in the bank, but I know that you can believe. I don't know if you're listening to this on the internet. I don't know where you live, but I know one thing. You can believe. The salvation is made available to everyone. Whosoever will may come, the Bible says. 
Think about that. Dear friend, that's good news. That's good news to someone in the bondage of a religion that teaches them hurting themselves every day is the path to salvation. Living as a slave to some church leader or some system of religion, that's the way to salvation. There are people in the world today that think that walking up stairs, concrete stairs, on bare knees while beating themselves in the back with chains until they're bruised and bloody, that's the way of salvation. But dear friend, no wonder the gospel is called glorious. This is the best news that anyone will ever hear. Amen. There's a prevailing thought today that says, well, if that's what you believe, that's what you believe, but don't bother other people with their religion. But oftentimes the people that say that have no concept of the effect and, and what these other religions believe. Do you know there's a religion that's pretty popular in America that when you die, you get to go be another, live on another planet? with weird alien angel-type creatures? Did you know there's a religion pretty popular in America that says you have to wear special spiritual underwear to keep the evil spirits away? I'm not kidding. The list goes on and on of all the weirdness and craziness in the world masquerading as religion and then there's the godless philosophies not necessarily called religion but they are religions in and of themselves atheism is a form of a religion i have more respect for an agnostic than i do an atheist an agnostic says i'm not sure if there's a god an atheist says i know there is no god which is an unprovable premise. And a matter of fact, there's an awful lot of evidence there is. It takes, I believe, it takes more faith to say there is no God than to declare there is the God of the Bible. That's why these people, they, they follow this, this dogmatism with a, a, a rabid loyalty. Evolution is today treated as almost a, a religion. It's sacred. When evolutionists themselves can't decide the methods and modes of evolution, it's talked about as if it's a settled fact, as if it is uh, just as real as this pulpit with godlike powers. And it doesn't surprise me that people worship evolution. The Bible's very clear that the creation, you walk outside and you look at the, the grass, the trees, the sky. At night, you lift your eyes to heaven and see the stars. Those things are meant to inspire awe and worship. And you're supposed to look at those and say, wow, God is amazing. It's no surprise that if you believe evolution did all that, you would fall on your knees to evolution and say, wow, evolution is Amazing. But you know, I'm old enough to believe when 
evolution was supposed to have taken millions of years. Anybody remember that? It used to be millions. But when the science told them that it couldn't have happened in millions of years, well, well now it takes billions. And what they'll ask is a, a presumption of faith. Are you saying that over billions of years these things couldn't have happened? I don't know. You don't even know how much a billion is. I, I guess it could have. Dear friend, that's why you'll find people that treat evolution with a, a, a religious loyalty and faith. I don't know how many people over the years I've witnessed to here in Rhode Island and New England, and I'll begin to witness to them, and they'll, they'll make this statement almost verbatim. I don't believe in God. I believe in evolution. Isn't that interesting? Politics today is sometimes treated as sacrosanct, as, as religious virtue. And that's why you see today, it used to be that politicians could disagree, but still get along. It used to be that you and your neighbor could disagree and still get along. But why is it now, if you don't agree with me, you're evil? If you don't agree with me, you're like Hitler. You're worse than Stalin. Really? Where does this fervor come from? It's almost a religious. Well, because in the ab and don't miss this fact, in the absence of the worship of God, something will fill that vacuum. Humans are made to worship. That means you are right now worshiping something in your life. Everybody on the planet is worshiping something. Something in their life has a place of awe and worship, and they give their devotion to it. For some, that's a false religion. For some, it's an idol made of wood, stone, or gold or silver. For some, it's a degree on a wall or a career. For too many in the Western world, it's a, an amount of money or the almighty dollar. I was in a house yesterday on uh, Ocean Road. And it, was, it had been for sale. And I was in there talking to somebody and, and you walk in. And it was an old house and it, it definitely needed some repair. You know, the windows, the seal and the double windows were broken and, and foggy and the the outside needed some work, and, and the, the window, the sliding glass door on the back was, was just in, in disrepair and needed to be replaced, and the kitchen looked like it was from the 80s. And, I mean, this house needed some work, but you walk in, and you walk up a little flight of stairs, and the entire back wall is windows where you have a view of, of the Bonnet Shores Bay, that little cove, and you kind of look across, and you can see the water on one side, you can see the cove on the other, and the the eastern side of, of the Bonnet Cove there where all those houses topped on top of each other and it looks almost like a little Mediterranean picture. And I was like, wow, that's a nice, nice view. I said, how much did this house sell for? They said, well, it just sold for $2.4 million. Like, this ain't my zip code. But what they were buying was the view. Because the house needed a lot of help. You know, there are some people that will sell 
their soul to live in that house, have a Porsche in the garage, Tesla in the driveway, nice retirement. What I'm saying is everybody worships something, but there's only one religion, there's only one belief system that tells you there is an almighty God who made everything and he loves you. And he knows every hair on your head. And for some of us, the number changes often. He knows every thought of your heart. He is intricately and personally involved in your life. And he loves you so much that he looked down from eternity past. He looked and said, there's going to be Paul Chapman, and I want him to be born, but he's going to be a sinner, and I don't want him to go to hell. The Bible in Acts talks about the determinate counsel, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit get together, making the salvation plan. And Christ says, I'm willing to die. The Father says, I'm willing to send you. The Spirit says, I'm willing to, to, to stay behind and, and help make all this happen. And the, the Godhead got involved in our salvation. And when you look at salvation in the scripture, you can see the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit each have a role in salvation. But the God of heaven says, I love you and I'm going to make a way for you to be saved. I'm going to make a way for to have all your sins forgiven. But I'm not going to stop there because I'm not going to save you to be my servant alone. I'm going to save you so you can become my child. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. Jesus said when you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But he didn't stop there. He said, I'm not just going to save you from hell. I'm going to make a very special place for you where you and I get to spend eternity together. And it's called heaven. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Why? That where I am, there ye may be also. God says, I want to spend eternity with you. And dear friend, I don't know what else to call all that. But glorious good news. See, when we share the gospel, we're not bothering people. When we preach Christ, we're not trying to tear them away from a, a similar religion. We are giving them the best news their human ears will ever hear. Amen. Isn't that a blessing? And that's why God encourages us to be personal soul winners locally. And he encourages us to give the gospel 
around the world through our world missions program. Look back at our text verse here. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Another verse talks about being entrusted with the gospel. The Apostle Paul said, I realize this good news isn't just for me, but this good news is my responsibility to share with others. Just as if you had the cure for cancer, how, how horrible of a person would you have to be to keep that to yourself while others died? Well, imagine the psychopathy of, of someone who says, I know how to go to heaven, but I'm not going to tell anybody. Years ago, a man <coughs> witnessed to pen of the famous pen and teller. And Penn was so moved. After one of the shows, a man witnessed to him and I think gave him a pamphlet or a Bible and said he wanted to be saved and, and trust Christ. And Penn's an atheist, but he was so moved, he made a video that went viral about how he respected the man for, for telling him about this. Because if you really believe there is a heaven and you really believe there is a hell, how could you not tell people and Penn asked this question. He said, how much would you have to hate someone to let them go to hell? It's a pretty powerful question, isn't it? See, far too often we see the gospel as a burden to be born, and it is a burden but we ought to see it as a privilege to share because it is the glorious gospel. It's the best news people will ever hear. Now, maybe they don't recognize it as glorious, but God still gets the glory even when they reject it. But notice here that the glorious gospel is committed to the apostles' trust, and through application, we understand it through the Great Commission. We understand that the, the glorious gospel is committed to our trust. Look at verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me. That he counted me faithful, putting me in the ministry. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You see, the Apostle Paul thought he was the worst sinner who had ever lived. And what he was saying is, if God can save me, and if God can use me, he goes on later to say that he can use anybody. And he can save anybody. But the apostle understood that the gospel was committed to his trust, but he didn't have to do this in his own power. He recognized that it was Christ Jesus the Lord who enabled him. And we all need that enabling in order to 
be good stewards of the gospel and to get the gospel around the world. The Bible calls this the glorious gospel. The word glorious is not a word that's used in our modern world very much. Glory often would speak of of, uh, the Olympics, a gold medalist, or uh, the Super Bowls later today, and and those, the winners will receive glory. The word glory comes from a word that means brightness or splendor or magnificence. And basically it has the idea of shining the light on someone or something, bringing it to a place of honor. And whenever we give glory to God, we shine the light on who God is, and that makes people praise Him and worship Him and we praise Him and worship Him. And when the Bible talks about the glorious gospel, it is a praiseworthy gospel. It is a a bright and awe-inspiring gospel. And whenever we give the gospel, that glory, that brightness is shed abroad, and it can actually bring light into a dark heart through salvation. It gives glory to God any time the gospel is shared. That's what I want to finish with you today, giving you a few of these thoughts about the glorious gospel. The glorious gospel gives God glory any time it's shared. Let me give you a few thoughts here. Number one, God receives glory when the gospel is shared. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God receives glory... When the gospel is shared. Now you understand that one of our primary functions for being on this planet is to bring glory to God. One of the reasons why God leaves us here after we're saved and doesn't just save us and take us to heaven immediately is so that we can bring glory to God and spread the glorious news of the gospel. But notice here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3, but if our gospel be hid... It is hid to them that are lost. See, lost people don't recognize the gospel as good news. They don't recognize it as glorious. And the Bible tells us why. Verse 4, In whom the God, little g of this world, the God of this world is the devil, in whom the God of this world hath, what's the next word? Blinded. Blinded. Now, did you know a blind person can look at the sun? And they don't even know they're looking at the sun. They don't see the brightness. They might feel the heat. They don't see the brightness. Lost people can look at your life and they might might feel the heat. They might know something's different, but they don't see the glorious gospel necessarily. Because the Bible says they're not blind in their eyes. They're blind in their mind. So Satan blinds the minds of the lost, of them which believe not. Why? Lest or unless the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. See, it's almost like if you've ever taken somebody and and maybe there's something you don't want them to see, so you cover their eyes, you try to hold their eyes, maybe there's a surprise party coming, and you're like, all right, let's, let's go in and don't look. Or maybe there's something gross or terrifying, so a parent will cover their child's eyes. Satan is covering the minds of the lost Because he knows the power of the glorious gospel of Christ. And if that light were to get into their eyes, it would illuminate them and bring bring to light their sinfulness, the glory of God, their need of the Savior, leading to their salvation. This is a glorious gospel. 
But that's why verse 5 says, For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. See, even with blinded minds, the preaching of the glorious gospel can shine through though that blindness of a lost person leading to their salvation. It's like closing your eyes and looking at the sun and you, you still can't really do it because it gets through the eyelids, doesn't it? It's like if you try to darken your room and you've got the shades pulled and you've got the, the room darkening curtains in our room. My, my wife, she's got some light sensitivity and, and she has to sleep weird times, but even the light, especially in the summer, will hurt her and our bedroom has a south-facing window and we've got the shades and we've got the room darkening uh, uh, curtains and different things and sometimes we'll even pin those together in the middle so they don't separate and we'll tuck them in on the sides and but all it takes is on a summer day, that curtain gets moved just about a half an inch. And you will have a ray of the sun piercing, <laughs> shatter that darkness. It doesn't need a lot of room to make a big difference. And what I'm saying is when we preach Christ, that glorious gospel doesn't need a lot of room to change a heart. Doesn't need a lot of space to save a soul. And boy, when that light gets in, it's like ripping off those blinders. And when you get saved, it's like seeing the world for the first time. It's beautiful. But see, God receives the glory when the gospel's shared. You say, well, what if they don't believe? God receives the gospel, or receives the glory when the gospel is shared. One missionary went around the world and it took him seven years to see his first soul saved. Imagine being on a mission field for seven years before you see your first soul saved. But can I tell you, God was getting the glory the whole time? What if you tell someone about Christ and they don't get saved? God gets the glory when the gospel is shared. That's good news. Let me say number two, God receives the glory when the gospel is believed. Now this one's kind of easy. God receives the glory when the gospel is believed. And John 15 says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. In Psalm 62, 7, the psalmist said, In God is my salvation and my glory. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You're here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verses 14 and 15. Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall represent, uh, or excuse me, shall present us with you for all things are for your sakes. Boy, think about that phrase. God, all things that God does are for your sakes. That the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. Watch this. God saves a soul. Now there is a lifetime of praise that returns back to God because that soul's been saved. How many times have you thanked God for your salvation? How many times have you thanked God for something He's done in your life? Countless times. Watch this. The praise doesn't end with this life because we go into eternity and we will praise God forever so that when somebody gets saved, God receives the glory when the gospel is believed 
for eternity. An innumerable amount of glory is returned to God whenever someone gets saved. Isn't that a blessing? So number one, the gospel, God receives the glory when the gospel is shared. Number two, God receives the glory when the gospel is believed. Number three, God receives the glory when the gospel is rejected. Oh, that might be surprising to you. God receives the glory when the gospel is rejected. Look at Luke chapter 20. Did you know that the entire, <clears throat> the entire earthly ministry of Christ, the Jews, the Jews in charge, rejected him? So was his life not glorifying to God? Oh no, it was the ultimate glorification of God. Sometimes we will determine success or failure by how our efforts are received. And let me just caution you, you are a success when you obey God whether or not those efforts are accepted or rejected by a lost world. You still bring glory to God when people reject your Savior, if you share the truth. Look at Luke chapter 20. And verse 17, Jesus just gives a powerful parable we won't take time to read. And it was against the Pharisees. Verse 17, and he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written, The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Just to give you a 30-second explanation, back in the old days when they were building with stone, they would bring the stones and the builders would, would decide if those stones were worthy for the task and the bigger stones would be on the bottom. Very special stones had to be put in load-bearing situations, much like a, a builder, they'll have to inspect their lumber. And I used to do this as a contractor, and I'm sure if you've ever done this at, at, at working on your house, if you go to Home Depot or the lumber yard, you probably want to check your lumber before you just throw it in the truck. Because lumber can go that way and that way and that way, and it can be all bent and twisted. And so a, a, a contractor, will, a builder will look at that board and set it on its side and see if it's straight and turn it this way and make sure it, it's all straight. And then he'll, he'll take that to be used. But in that process, he'll find some that are rejected. No, that's not good enough for me to use. And in these stone situations, they would look at these, these stones. And as I said, the, the bigger stones had to be used at the bottom. But stones that would bear the weight, that would transfer the weight from the structure before it, had to be especially established. And those would become like the head of the corner, the, the, the bottom corner pieces that would bear the weight of the structure. Those had to be excellent, strong pieces. But Jesus said... The Bible says that the builders are going to reject the stone. But that stone's going to become the head of the corner. It's going to become the most important stone in the building. And Jesus, of course, likening himself to the stone. The Jews were rejecting him, but he was the most important man they would ever see. Did you know God still got the glory? Did you know if you throw your pearls before swine, they won't ooh and all? Jesus said, don't, put, don't throw your pearls before swine. 
Does it make the pearls any less valuable when the swine ignores them or stomps them into the mud? No. Does it make Christ any less the Savior when people reject Him? No. Does it make the gospel any less glorious when people reject it? No. Read on what the Bible says here in Luke chapter 10. And verse 18 is a powerful verse. And whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And here we see the difference between submission and destruction. Do you know if you're going to come to God, you've got to come broken? If you ever come face to face with Jesus, it will break you. That's why even in the Old Testament... When people would see an angel, they would fall on their face begging not to die. Confronted with the simple glory of one of God's servants. Imagine being brought face to face with the glorified Son of God. If you come to Christ, you're going to have to be broken. Nobody gets saved in pride. If you're going to get saved, you're going to have to humble yourself and admit your need of a Savior. So you fall on the stone, and you will be broken. But if the stone falls on you, you'll be crushed to powder. The proverb says, He that being often reproved, and hardeneth his neck, he gets stiff and stubborn, shall suddenly be destroyed. And that without remedy. What's that mean? You won't be able to put it back together. There's only two groups of people in this world. Those that fall on the rock and are broken. They come to God broken and find salvation. And those that reject the rock and get crushed to powder, they get destroyed. You know, even when the world rejects the gospel, God still gets the glory. Let me say this, the the job of the Christian is to be the light and salt of the world. The only way the devil can fight the gospel is to keep it from being shared. That's why you see in our world today, and you've seen this, used to we'd have to prove it to you, but now it's so obvious. Why is it that certain forces in politics and in our nation want to erase the Bible, from public conversation. They want to erase Bible verses off of public buildings. They want to remove crosses from public view. They want preachers to stop preaching. They want Christians to be quiet. Why is that? Because the only way Satan can defeat the gospel is when it's no longer shared And I will tell you that just the existence of the gospel, even though America right now is fighting for herself and it seems like about half the nation is choosing godless foolishness and the other half, even though they're not committed Christians, are saying, no, we don't want that. The the speech of the gospel being shared, every time it's shared on a TV, every time it's shared in a radio, each time it's shared in a public park or, or through a track, or in a church service, or across a table, or at Thanksgiving. It seasons the culture. It shines the light in the culture and keeps the culture 
from speeding even faster toward destruction. God receives the glory even when the gospel's rejected. The gospel's that important and it's that glorious. Let me show you this last one. God receives the glory when the gospel is fulfilled. Turn to the book of Revelation. Of course, the end of our salvation is heaven. Several verses we could look at, but we'll just look at one portion here. Revelation chapter 7. Look at verse, verses 9. And after this, I beheld and lo a great multitude, which no man could number. Who are these people? Oh, they're of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. What are they doing? They stood before the throne and before the land, clothed with white robes. That's our our salvation, with palms in their hands, that's a symbol of worship, and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God saying, Amen, and blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Folks, that's the end of our salvation. One of these days, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you and I will be in this moment. You and I will be part of that countless throng, arrayed in spiritual robes of white, in a glorified body, palms in our hand, looking at the Son of God, looking at the Father, waving those things, bowing on our faces, shouting praise and honor and glory and blessing. What a day that's going to be. And you know, God's going to get the glory for all eternity. Amen. God gets the glory when the gospel's fulfilled. God gets the glory when the gospel is shared. He gets the glory when the gospel's believed. He gets the glory when the gospel's rejected. And He gets the glory when the gospel is fulfilled. That, dear friend, is the glorious gospel of Christ. Let me encourage us this missions month, but far beyond this month, we should never be ashamed of the glorious gospel. The Apostle Paul said this, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Dear friend, I, I am sad to say at times in my life I have been ashamed. And God forgive me. Because we should never be ashamed of such glorious good news. Let's take it with us this week, share it wherever we can, and then let's take part in our world missions program. And every penny that comes in goes to the missionaries around the world, church planners and missionaries, so the glorious gospel can be preached both here and around the world at the same time. Amen? Father, we're thankful for the glorious gospel. Lord, you are truly an amazing God. 
Thank you for a gospel that's so glorious and so worthy to be shared. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving us. I pray, Lord, that in these crazy days, in these last days, that you would save a multitude. We know that after the church is raptured, during the tribulation, you're going to save a countless number. But Lord, help us in these last days to see multitudes saved. Spirit of God, work in us and throughout our communities and around the world. Soften hearts, open doors. Give us boldness and power to speak. And give a lost world ears to hear. We pray that you'd rip the blinders off their minds and help the light of the glorious gospel to shine in. So you can just have glory multiplied now and forever.